Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. Last time I presented part three of my interview with one of the early opponents in the fight against assisted suicide, Dr. William L. Toffler, family physician of Oregon, the state which first fell to the culture of death with respect to physician-assisted suicide. He has been fighting assisted suicide for nearly 30 years. Dr. Toffler is the National Director of Physicians for Compassionate Care, an association of physicians and other health care professionals dedicated to preserving the traditional relationship of the physician and patient as one in which the physician's primary task is to heal when possible, comfort always, and never intentionally harm. Their website is pccef.org. Physicians for Compassionate Care Educational Foundation, pccef.org. Today you will hear part four of my interview with Dr. William Toffler as he further describes how state-sanctioned, medicalized suicide has corrupted the practice of medicine. We will also discuss the dangers of POLST, which stands for Physician Orders of Life-Sustaining Treatment, which also originated in Oregon and is sweeping the country. Again, POLST stands for Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. In some states like Massachusetts, MOLST is used, which stands for Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Although this document has its place regarding end-of-life care, it can easily be abused. Before we continue, let us pray. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls. Will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life? O God, we pray that you will preserve medicine to heal sometimes, Comfort always, and kill never. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I have said, physician-assisted suicide corrupts the medical profession, the medical profession on which we all depend. A common tactic of proponents of physician-assisted suicide is to try to get medical societies to flip from opposition to neutrality, which is a very insidious type of corruption. 
They argue that since many physicians in various medical societies are in favor of physician-assisted suicide, medical societies should drop their opposition and become neutral. However, this is really a treacherous abandonment of Hippocratic medicine and an abandonment of patients. Last time I read the summary of a brilliant article supportive of this position. It was written by Dr. Daniel P. Solmasi, M.D., Ph.D. of the Departments of Medicine and Philosophy at the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics and the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown University, Washington, D.C. Dr. Somasi, along with others, wrote the article, which was published on May 2, 2018, in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, and it was entitled, Physician-Assisted Suicide, Why Neutrality by Organized Medicine is Neither Neutral Nor Appropriate. I will now read the body of that important article. In 2015 and 2016, the Medical Societies of California, Colorado, and the District of Columbia adopted official neutral stances regarding physician-assisted suicide, followed by the legalization of the practice in those jurisdictions. Declarations of neutrality by state medical organizations in advance of legalization also occurred in Oregon and Vermont, but not Washington State. The Massachusetts Medical Society adopted a neutral position in late 2017. Recently, both the American Medical Association and the World Medical Association have been asked by some members to consider revising their opposition to physician-assisted suicide. Some are now calling on official medical organizations to move beyond neutrality to engaged neutrality on the issue, providing advice to physicians who participate in the practice where it is legal. The article continues. The United States Supreme Court has ruled that physician-assisted suicide is not a constitutional right, but states may choose to legalize it. Physician-assisted suicide is now legal in Oregon, Washington, Vermont, Montana, California, Colorado, and the District of Columbia. And I would add, as an aside, that since 2018, Hawaii, New Jersey, and New Mexico have been added. Back to the article... Over the last two decades, state referenda to legalize physician-assisted suicide has been defeated more often than they have passed. In 2017 alone, physician-assisted suicide bills were rejected in 27 states. In 2016, the New Mexico Supreme Court overturned a lower court ruling that there is no constitutional right to physician-assisted suicide in that state. However, also an aside, it was passed legislatively in New Mexico just last year in 2021. Returning to the article, New York also ruled that there is no constitutional right to physician-assisted suicide. 
The American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine is neutral, while the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization is opposed. The American Medical Association, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Nurses Association, and the World Medical Association all remain opposed. The British Medical Association is also opposed and has explicitly rejected calls for neutrality. Informal online polls of United States physicians have produced conflicting results. While a national scientific stratified poll has shown a majority are opposed to physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. The article goes on to explain why neutrality is not neutral. In disagreements, a position of neutrality is sometimes proposed either as a compromise to accommodate diverse views or as an expression of uncertainty about an issue. This approach might sound reasonable were a position statement an internal document addressed exclusively to members. A position statement by a professional organization, however, is oriented externally, addressing the profession, state, and the public at large about an issue relevant to the practice of that profession. The stance of bodies representing the medical profession on issues of medical ethics has social and political consequences, especially in the case of physician-assisted suicide because doctors are the intended implementers, making the profession's views central to the political debate. Neutrality is not neutral. To change from opposition to neutrality represents a substantive shift in a professional ethical, and political position, declaring a policy no longer morally unacceptable. The political effect is to give it a green light. Logically, neutrality implies we are not opposed. When the California Medical Society became neutral on physician-assisted suicide, the newspapers rightly reported... California Physicians End Opposition to Aid in Dying Bill. Some might argue that neutrality is necessary because there are jurisdictions in which members of the medical organizations can prescribe physician-assisted suicide legally. But exceedingly few physicians engage in the practice, even in jurisdictions where it is legal. And the fact that some members do so does not require any professional body to be neutral with respect to the practice. As a logical counterexample, and not an analogy, to the thesis that professional neutrality is required if a medical practice is legal, consider the fact that physician participation in capital punishment is legal in 30 states. This fact does not affect the ethical opposition that the profession takes, nor has organized medicine felt compelled to give instructions on how to execute prisoners well for those few members who do this. Disagreement among members does not require a position of neutrality. Similarly, there are members of medical organizations who disagree with their organization's position on mammogram screening and health care reform, 
Presumably, both sides have made their cases, but one side has prevailed. The concluding paragraph of this paper reads this way. Nor is an organization that opposes the legalization of physician-assisted suicide logically or ethically required to discipline members who participate in the practice in jurisdictions where it is legal. For example, a medical organization opposed to single-payer systems is not required to discipline physicians who practice in states that adopt it and participate in its billing system. Restraint in disciplining members who legally engage in a practice that an organization opposes does not logically require organizational neutrality. Moreover, professions have a positive ethical responsibility to take public stances on issues that are central to the meaning of their work. Neutrality on physician-assisted suicide in this light seems an abdication of professional responsibility. Each profession has a duty to define the ethical parameters of its practice within the public sphere, subject to the political limits necessary to sustain and promote the common good. And now here is part four of my conversation with Dr. William Toffler. Well, you know, we've had a, this has been enjoyable. We've had a wide ranging uh, discussion from, uh, from assisted suicide to COVID, but, and I don't want to keep you too long, but I, there's, there's one other thing that's gotten very big around here is the whole MOLST thing, or they, uh, they also call it POLST, uh, which is Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, and in, or in Massachusetts we used MOLST for Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. This too, this whole move for these uh, do-not-resuscitate orders, do-not-give artificial nutrition, so on and so forth, this, this originated in, in Oregon too, it seems to have grown out of the same people who were pushing assisted suicide. Am I right about that? Well, there is certainly an overlap there. I wouldn't accuse everybody on the Pulse paradigm that's physician order for life-sustaining treatment of being necessarily promoting assisted suicide, but a lot were. Yeah. In other words, the issue of this idea of making sure people um, weren't getting things done that they didn't want done, and that's not a bad concept. I mm-hmm. mean, just a philosophical notion of, sure, there are things that would be disproportional to the situation that could be done and probably were done 40 years ago mm-hmm. when I was a medical student. I'm not probably they were done mm-hmm. where we were doing things where we probably looked, should have looked at the big picture. So the concept is not bad. The problem is it is a physician order, right? Right. It's not necessarily a patient order in many States, including Oregon at one time. And I think it's still true. It's optional for the patient to sign it exactly it's uh so who's really making the decision is one of the concerns Mm -hmm. the other concern is it's 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 gotten uh it's evolved and it's gotten better with time because of the appropriate critiques that i and other people like yourself have have given to it in fact if people are really interested in it there's a white paper i was part of the authorship of this paper with perhaps i don't know 10 or 12 of us that that wrote it over about two-year period that was Lenaker Quarterly, right? org website, cathmed.org. Yes, yeah, I remember and seeing so that. It, it goes into much more detail than we have time to go into of why right. it is potentially dangerous, why it shouldn't be used 
you know, they're giving these forms the most, the pulse, most med- medical order for sustaining treatment, yep. post physician order for sustaining, you know, they have different acronyms. Right, right. But the concept's the same. The idea is good, asking people what they would want, but you get these forms shoved in the face of the patient when they're going in for bunionectomy for Ex- exactly sex, a hernia exactly. repair or they're um, given way too early they're they're given when they're healthy they don't have a terminal illness but maybe they're right. they're about to go to a nursing home or whatever they say, hey why don't you sign this when it's when it's totally right. irrelevant like you said if you're going in for a bunionectomy or something yeah i often get people they get this fear about you know being trapped on a respirator which you know very very rare this makes national news when this kind of thing happens and so, you know, they're fearful of that. So I get a lot of people who will say, I don't want any resuscitation. So I often then step back and say, so if you were choking on a, on a fragment of meat, you, you wouldn't want me to do a Heimlich maneuver. Right. Oh, oh no, that would be okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, then you better not put down do not resuscitate because there are people will take that very seriously yeah. and yeah. feel like they're breaking the law to violate what you might sign here yeah, or someone right. signs for you. Yeah, or someone once said, uh, don't don't give people the the bullets to kill you with. Well, and that's a that's a good metaphor. And I think that's the that's the reality. So, you know, with my late wife as a clear example, I've looked at this, I've given talks about it, I've studied the research. If you label yourself do not resuscitate, you don't get as many antibiotics, you don't get as yeah. many blood transfusions, yeah. you don't get yeah. admitted to the ICU yeah. as often. Right. If you get admitted at all. And so basically you get inferior care by exactly. being labeled do not resuscitate. Cool. So we didn't put DNR until it was checkmate the right. last week of her right. life when right. there was nothing else to do. Right. In fact, it was only about a week before she died that we went into the intensive care unit. Why? Not because we wanted her to, to pass her last days there. No, we wanted a blood transfusion and they weren't comfortable in her fragile state of doing an emergency room. So we mm-hmm. went and tried to give her a blood transfusion in the intensive care unit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't where you're going to die there. So we got one-on-one nursing. The blood transfusion, by the way, was something I was pushing for. I was just trying, let's get more box cars to carry the blood. Yeah. And I had to fight against the attending to do it. But uh, he did it. It didn't work. I My my hope was not not successful on the other hand i got a one-on-one nurse who was very experienced and take care of people with chronic pain and breathing problems lack of uh, yeah. uh, air hunger and oxygen my, right. my wife had air trapping and so she pushed the morphine more than i did at home yeah the pain medicine and that the oxygen didn't help the the blood transfusion didn't help what helped was giving her more pain medicine yeah. than I had been willing to give her. Yeah, having and, that extra and care. And so I, I learned something from that. We went home from the ICU. She died peacefully at home yeah. with dignity about five or six days mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. So intensive care is when you need one-on-one nursing. Yeah. It's not when you're going to be trapped on a respirator. Right. So people have all of these fearful assumptions about what this means to to be given good care in the hospital we were there for perhaps 22 23 hours and we learned a lot from that experience and she was much more comfortable in the last days of her life because she got intensive care to see what we could do to manage her better yeah yeah and and, you know like you said that there there are one downside of another downside of these uh most and post forms are that if you sign one of those things in this, along the same lines, you don't get as good a care. Uh, there are EMTs in this state 
I've heard, have been instructed, um, there was a lawyer who, who told me about her experience with this, that they are, the, the EMTs are given instructions. If you go to somebody's home and they have one of these post forms, don't resuscitate them, but, but that includes things, it includes don't treat them. So for instance, if, if you go in and somebody's you know, having agonal respirations and, and uh, they don't do anything, and uh, so do not resuscitate does not mean do not treat. So there's, a, you know, there's a, another downside to, to signing one of those well, things. Well, exactly. And, and the two things can get conflated. And that's, I mean, I had to, for years, try to educate medical students and residents when I was at Oregon Health and Science University uh, about that distinction. Yep. And, and, you know, most people have not done the research that I did about what are the implications and, and what you're describing as an anecdote in Massachusetts with some EMTs is not just isolated. It's, it's large places because people have this men mentioned, if you, if you've said this on a form, then you shouldn't even discuss it anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I remember a resident getting mad at me one time because I was on the inpatient service for that particular week. And I had an older, older patient with heart failure and she was a cantankerous kind of curmudgeon of a lady. She wouldn't even shake my hand, but we got her out of her heart failure with diuretics and the yeah. usual things that you do in the hospital. Yeah. And I had a Saturday morning where I had plenty of time, not that many people to see, and I just talked to her about her wishes. And so we went through things like do not resuscitate because she'd said DNR, I'm DNR. And she said to me, you don't know how it is with, uh, with not being able to walk across the room to go to the bathroom. Yeah, I don't want any resuscitation. So I said, well, let me, let me go through that in more depth. So if, if you had uh, your heart stopped, you wouldn't want me to just thump on the chest like you see in the movies sometimes. And she said, well, well, that would be OK. I <laughs> said, well, how about if we put these paddles on you like you see in the movies, too, or on television or, you know, you jump a little bit. And it shocks your heart back into a, a good rhythm. Well, well, that would be OK. Yeah, and I amazing. said, well, gosh, uh, so you, you, you would be OK with uh, somebody if, if we had to for a while uh, pump on your chest to uh, to keep the heart going. Uh, well, that would be okay. I said, well, well, then maybe it's that you don't want any, uh, any, any breathing tube intubate. No tubes in my face. I don't want any tubes in my face. So what she was really saying with the DNR was, I don't want to have a tube in my face and be trapped on a respirator. Yeah, it's a very different limitation of what you would do than saying do not resuscitate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, very, very important to talk to people and listen to them, listen to them, and and that conversation actually continued. Because at some point she mentions that she is for assisted suicide and she talks about all the difficulties it is with her life and all that, why she wants it. And I said, well, I want you to know, I, I, would it be okay if I share some of my perspective about you? I appreciate you telling me about how difficult it is. Because you're right, I don't know what it's like to have heart failure. So I've learned a lot listening to you. Can I tell you how about how I feel about your life? She said, well, yeah, that's fine. So I talked to her and I say, you know, I want you to know if I were your doctor regularly, and I was taking care of you. I, I would not want ever. I would support you. I would give you every help I could medically so you could live your life well till its natural end. But but I never would help you uh, end your own life with assisted suicide. And she said, why? What difference does it make to you? I said, well, I like talking to you. And for the first time, she gets a little teary eyed in her eyes and she reaches over and touches my hand for the first time in our, you know, one or two days that we had yeah. together yeah. As, with me as her doctor. So this is what we've taught doctors now to do is to essentially be essentially 
vending machines for whatever they want and don't mm-hmm. try to push back gently, even when that person can maybe be benefited by the reflection of their worth in yep. the doctor's eyes. Yep. And this is sad. Well, amen to that. Well, I've, I've kept you for for a long time here. Um, well, your always, time is valuable, but I... I no, but it's, it's great to talk with you, and it's, yeah. uh, it's encouraging that just to have someone who realizes that this is a little more... Um, complicated than just uh, the the sound bites and the euphemisms yeah, that drive our culture to the edge. Yeah, of the it's really important the cliff, to have you know? this kind of in depth conversation. So, before I do let you go, any anything we didn't cover? Any last things that you uh, well, well there are lots mention? of things we didn't cover, but yeah. I think that could be for another time. When that would be great. <laughs> I'd love that. <laughs> well, thank you, Bill. I really, really uh, appreciate this, and um, and I appreciate what you're doing, Mark. I think it's important that that people get some credible information from uh, individuals like yourself and those of us who are trying to push back against a, a common narrative where everyone gets treated like cattle. Yes, right. Amen. This concludes part four of my interview with Dr. William Toffler. Very helpful information regarding most forms from a Catholic perspective can be found on the Worcester Diocese website worcesterdiocese.org slash most that's worcesterdiocese.org slash most it is written in a very readable question and answer format here are a few excerpts most or medical order for life sustaining treatment is a document which requires a cautionary attitude on the part of catholic faithful Is using the form voluntary? When or if you are asked to complete a most form, remember that it remains voluntary, and no one must complete one. Even a duly executed most form can be changed or nullified at any time, either by the competent patient or the health care proxy. How do you complete a most form and what you should not do? Only consider doing so if your primary care physician or other healthcare professional engages you in communication, describing, and discussing the medical implication of your choices. Decline to fill in a most form on your own. What if I am worried about someone hastening my death? While every proposed medical treatment is not required by the church, Overly burdensome treatment can be morally refused. Catholics are highly encouraged to designate a health care proxy who can speak on your behalf when you are no longer able to do so. When the health care proxy knows your desire to live and die in conformity with church teaching, then he or she can more effectively determine which medical treatment offers the best chance for you to continue to live or, conversely, would impose such burden on you that it can be legitimately refused. Again, for more information, go to worcesterdiocese.org slash most. Until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first 
do no harm. First, do no harm with Dr. Mark Rollo is produced at WQPH 89.3 FM, Shirley Fitchburg. We are very happy to share it with other networks. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rollo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first, do no harm.